You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we are back with not really a film Friday, uh, kind of like a special bonus episode, hey, Andrew? Yeah, I guess I would call it that. I mean, it definitely started as a film Friday. We were watching, of course, The Legend of Boggy Creek, but it kind of spiraled out of control because this <laughs> uh, because this uh, story is super detailed and just really interesting and obviously dabbles in almost the kind of Sasquatch lore that we really love. Mm-hmm. So today... We're going to be talking about a couple of different things. The infamous monster of Boggy Creek. Otherwise known as the Falk Monster. Exactly, the Falk Monster. And of course, also discussing uh, the now iconic original film, The Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972, and the sequel that came out a few years later. The sequel that was done by the same director, uh, Charles Pierce, because there are actually several movies that have come out uh, in this sort of... Uh, umbrella, I guess you could yeah, say, the but canon of Boggy Creek. The canon, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. The lexicon of Boggy. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot. There's there is. Lot. Yeah, there's about f- three or four extra ones that are done by different people, mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware. So and then there's the back. documentary that we are also going to cover as yes. well. That was done by Small Town Monsters, which was awesome. Can't wait to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Before we jump right into it, though, you guys, we have uh, a couple of shout outs to do um, because we had some new patrons recently, Woo-hoo. which was amazing. So big, big shout out and big thanks to. Saga, who joined us as a paranormal scholar. Thank you so much. We also had Esteban, who joined us as an ancient explorer at that level on our Patreon there. And then as well, we had Christopher H., who joined us uh, as a paranormal scholar as well. So thank you so much to you three. Thank you. Really stoked to have you. And so awesome. uh, I we've already kind of chatted with a few of you, and I know you guys have been enjoying the, the backlog. So if you guys want to mm. know what we do on Patreon and what these guys are all enjoying, uh, hit us up. The link is in the show notes. All right, without further ado, let's get right into The Legend of Bucky Creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to kick things off with the film from 1972. And like we already said, this was produced, directed, and written by Charles B. Pierce. He was sort of a local, but we're going to get into him a little bit more of his backstory because he mm-hmm. plays a very centrifugal role in all of this, obviously. Definitely. But let's get into the actual movie itself here. So this is a really fun cult film. It's a classic from the 70s. It's described as a docudrama horror film, uh, basically uncovering the mystery of what is known as this Boggy Creek monster or the Falk monster. Exactly. And in the area of Falk, so this is a small rural town, basically in the southeastern corner of Arkansas and very close to the border of Louisiana and Texas. Right. So it's kind of in that crossroads area. And uh, it was interesting in the documentary we watched from Small Town Monsters, they did get into Fauk a little bit, how it had a history of outlaws in the area because it was so near to those borders. So they could just skip over the border if they needed to. Easy access to a bunch of different states and and waterways and and places to hide, really. It reminds me actually a lot of Ned Kelly. The oh, idea yeah. of, uh, of the bush rangers hiding out in the totally. outback, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Rural places, easy to disappear into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for other things to disappear into as well. <laughs> so it all centers around these like bog forests, these uh, sulfur river bottomlands of southern Arkansas that, like I said, bleed into the states of Texas and Louisiana. This film it was rated G, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, that's what it said on, even the, though, on the poster. Exactly, even though it does bleed into the realm of horror, perhaps that's real how life it's horror, described, which is kind of interesting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it takes a decidedly like documentarian slash like ethnographic approach to the topic. There's many scenes that depict these vast expanses of natural wilderness, this boggy landscape. It focuses on many of the locals. Uh, with accounts of this elusive creature, and many of them like play themselves and and narrate their accounts. And he kind of starts off talking about, well, maybe you can get into this, Andrew. Yeah, the film begins with a statement on a black background that uh, really tees this all up, because in big, bold capital letters, it says, this is a true story. Some of the people in this movie portray themselves, in many cases, on actual locations. So mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, this really grounds the story in reality for us and really gives it this authentic this authentic feel, because it was the people who even just a few months earlier, like within the year, had experienced this creature, the either real... attacking their family or, or a sighting in the woods or something like that. Totally. So it actually took a lot of gumption, I think, for some of these locals to participate in the movie. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's almost like the classic thing that we encounter all the time with stories like this, where it's like, it takes a lot for people to come out of the woodwork and actually share these experiences. And we'll get into a few cases where people literally didn't even do that until their deathbed. Crazy. Um, But getting back to the whole thing, yeah, like this is a very like ethnographic, very like grassroots style film. It was actually filmed with a 16 millimeter camera that Pierce assembled himself. Interesting. And he had some knowledge of the inner workings of television because he actually worked for a television station so Mm -hmm. he accrued a lot of those talents while he was working in other fields yeah and it was cool too because he took a lot of people that were locals including like the crew the film crew um aspects of the set obviously this was filmed on location the actors themselves locals uh, mostly shot in falk and the movie itself interestingly cost about $165,000 and a large majority of that was loaned to Pierce by a local trucking company as the story goes. Right. However, this would go on to le- earn over $20 million in box office uh, sales. It was and a huge hit. It was a, it was a huge hit. No one knew how big this was really going to get. Yeah, it started off as kind of just within the state, well, within the the county of the state and then branched out into the rest of the state of Arkansas as a drive-in thing a big phenomenon at the drive-ins before it really hit other theaters across the entire country which was kind of crazy right and then they started mashing it up with other monster features or like smaller films and and uh, making it like a double hit feature things like that which is kind of cool yeah exactly and it is strange because they they show some things in the movie that like imply that this is beyond just sort of a sasquatch like creature like we have this little note here of like the uh, the one scene where there's a kitten shown having been scared to death quote unquote you know what i mean no actual contact made with it it's like this is a monster not a cryptozoological phenomena so Mm -hmm. to speak you know what i mean which is interesting to me you know it's funny you mentioned that scene that was probably one of the most disturbing visual images of the film i would say because it does depict a kitten that is deceased and it's very obvious because you can see, because cats, they have like two eyelids and you can see like one of the inner eyelid is like halfway up right. and there's no real way you could really fake that. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, that's Kinda horrible. Sad. Yeah. Very sad. But, but I don't know how they actually got that footage. Yeah. 1970s, mm. man. 
Hmm. Interesting stuff. But like you said, though, <laughs> it, is, it, it is very much like a documentary for the first half of the movie. It's all these yeah. wide panning shots, really like slow motion. Yeah, just nature shots showing how the beautiful splendor of the natural wilderness of this uh, this southern portion of Arkansas, basically, right? Yeah, It's vast. teeing up the serenity. I guess that's a perfect sort of juxtaposition to the horror that the families would. You know. Oh, yeah. I think he does a good job, though, of interspersing like it's it's moments of tranquility it's very like joe para-esque because we are like a naturalist sort of film kind of thing where it's very relaxing but then there is this sense of like ominous sort of like rumblings in the under and you get like these like strange creature cries at certain points in the film and yeah it's all just super spooky and I think that was really effective in my opinion because you're not relying on anything but nature and nature almost takes on a role of its own, right? Like it's the star. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And then the people here are just going into it and then this is what they come out saying. And let's get into some of these stories that were told in this film. Yeah, let's do it. There's some really weird ones. Uh, There was this one and this was actually... There's variations of this from different people, but there was one farmer in this first film that claimed that the beast actually carried off two of his 200-pound hogs with little effort, leaping a fence with the animals tucked under its arm. And he was very thorough. He said he went around the whole fence line of his property. There was no way, there was no um, instances of breakage in the fence, and there was no instances where the hogs could have been, like, pushed underneath it like you know like kind of like scooted so an extremely underneath. tall creature had to step over the mm-hmm. fence and then lift them up 400 pounds worth of pork yeah and, uh, that's a lot yeah it is and, and we've heard these stories before like sasquatch scooping up large objects right and it's it's bizarre exactly it seems that hogs and other farm animals seem to attract this monster there's other anecdotes that we have further along that kind of allude to that as well but what do you make of that hey like it's it's clearly it's in some instances, it seems as if it's just for sport. Like these things are decimated and they're just yeah. left like the remnants. Like there's one story that I'll actually recount a little bit further along here talking yeah. about how the guts were just ripped out and they were just basically just just obliterated, but nothing was seemingly eaten from them. Yeah. Harkening back to our last film episode with Big Legend a little bit where it mm-hmm. just seems to be angry almost. It's not really hunting for sustenance per se, although they repeat over and over again in the film and also in the Small Monsters documentary too, the idea that it only comes out at certain times for very, you know, things we would expect from a creature looking for food or shelter, things that they might need depending on the season or availability of different resources and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So is it really that hungry that it's coming out to steal a pig? Or is it just kind of like that time of year and it's been interacting with people in this community and it's maybe getting a little ticked off because it's been shot at a couple of times by people. Yeah. Well, we haven't quite gotten to that yet. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because we do have even hunters attempting to pursue this creature at certain points in the film. There's one sequence where they have their hunting dogs with them, the whole pack, and the dogs refuse to give chase. Yeah. And there might have been a couple explanations for that that we'll get into in a minute as well here, but that was a fun one. Yeah. Uh, Police officer sightings as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, There was a constable uh, from Falk that stated while he was driving home uh, one night, the creature that was clearly the Boggy Creek monster suddenly uh, ran out across the road right in front of his car, uh, very, very close to his car. Mm -hmm. And this was a time in the 1970s where people weren't necessarily, like we said, some people didn't mention any of this till their deathbed. Um, you wouldn't go right away the next morning and be like, I saw the Boggy Creek monster until the film came out, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. 
And even then, it was 50-50. People didn't really want to associate with it. Other people only wanted to associate with it, which is they embraced pretty it. interesting. Yeah. But Yeah, totally. And that kind of speaks to... <laughs> it seems to be the case that the sheriff and the police department do take this seriously. And this is in the film, and then it's in real life as well, as yeah. we'll get into. Mm-hmm. There's a few articles that allude to that as well. There was another really interesting one, an encounter that told the story of a hunter who was out in the woods near Boggy Creek, and he spotted the monster washing its feet in the water. Okay. Yeah, the creature did look at the man, and after several moments, kind of just disappeared into the woods. And the man stated it was unbelievable. The creature was so manlike that despite him having a rifle on him, ready to go, he didn't shoot it because he was afraid that it was actually a man, and he couldn't live with himself if it turned out to be the case. So he just kind of was frozen in fear, didn't know what to do, had it, I guess, as self-defense if the creature charged him or something, but, you know, never happened. Just yeah, he, he said he switched out the shells and his gun just in case for protection because he had, like, mm-hmm. a different caliber in there for ducks or something. Yeah, right? he had, like, a bird shot and he switched it to his buck shots. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I guess that would be something that would cross all of our minds very much so today, too. I mean, how many, uh, you can definitely buy Sasquatch outfits on Amazon, so what if it is just someone in the woods dressed up, potentially trying yeah. to get some photos, kind of like the, uh, you know, the, um, oh gosh, not the Folden film. The, the film footage from the, uh, the, uh, our Dogman episode. Oh my gosh, I'm skipping oh. my mind. The guy in the ghillie suit. Yes. Something yeah, along those lines, right? Yeah, what was that guy's right? name? I we can remember. come back to that. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I think just to wrap up a little discussion, I really, what did you make of this film, like overall? I was so caught off guard by the style of it initially. Mm-hmm. Like I was fully prepared watching the introduction that for a horror movie right and then the first half of it is very much this this documentary it's narrated by the child who had grown up uh you know living with this experience and stuff like that but then it really gets into it so right that's a good yeah actually sorry i'm I'm glad you brought that up the child the narrator Mm -hmm. because for me i was kind of confused i was like is he is this Pierce talking or like, you know, cause it's not actually Pierce narrating per se, but did he write it and get someone else to narrate it for him? And then you have this character of Jim. Jim is a young boy. Jim is an adult. Mm-hmm. And you're like, who the hell is Jim? But Jim is just a fictional guy. Um, it was like a, a fictionalized narrative interspersed within the sort of ethnographic accounts that he kind of right. gets into. But I thought I was like, at first I was like, wait a second, is, is Jim Charles? Is that a nickname for Charles? <laughs> but yeah. no, no, definitely not the case at all. <laughs> it was, yeah. So like going back to your question, it was just funny because it's, it's this, it's the kid running through the field in like that opening scene, right? Which is very kind of dramatic, like cinematic. It was almost like the opening to like Inglorious Bastards or something with the mm-hmm. girl running through the, the field oh, with totally, the milk or something, yeah. right? Uh, But then it shifts into very much a documentary style because they wanted to make sure people knew that these were real events. They they put it in chronological order and it was very clear and concise Mm -hmm. before they started just showing these monster scenes of like a a hand breaking through the glass in the bathroom going after uh, Bobby or whoever it was, right? Right. And we're going to get to that in a second. So that's my thought of it. I thought it was a really good split. That's, that's what that's what educated people and entertained people at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good point to make, for sure. And like you alluded to, the whole, the climax of this film was a highly uh, detailed account that was real. It was reported in the Texarkana Gazette, if I'm not mistaken, among other publications mm-hmm. that were local. Yeah. And basically tells the story of a very strange besiegement of a house. And we have the whole story here we're going to get into. Let's get into just the monster itself. I think it's time for that. Let's do it. So the Boggy Creek monster or the Falk monster of Arkansas is essentially very similar to 
the Bigfoot or Sasquatch or skunk ape, even though there's very differences between all these creatures, of course, but essentially seven foot tall or more humanoid like creature walking up upright bipedally, right? Covered in thick brown matted fur with uh, very dark glowing red eyes, at least when seen in the dark at nighttime, massive claws on its hands. And curiously, Uh, In some of the footprints, only three toes, which was one of the very first ones ever found and a cast taken of it in the bean field of of Willie. I can't remember his full uh, full name. We'll come. We'll get to him (laughs) in a minute here. But that's essentially that's essentially the monster. So some some major differences from the classic Sasquatch right off the top. Uh, But we're going to come back to this later, the idea of three toes, because there's, of course, another creature just south of this in Louisiana. That's kind of similar in the Honey Island Swamp Monster. But let's just briefly talk about some sightings here, because the first reported sighting occurred in the 1950s, although in the Small Town Monsters documentary, there was potentially even stuff dating back to like the turn of the century, early 1900s. Yeah. But we're just going to go back to the 50s here. For now. For now. Uh, (laughs) Although, yeah, some some people even point to like, you know, 1946 is a year where there was some sightings and stuff referenced. 1955 is a very specific one when there was a boy about 14 years old who spotted the creature standing upright and allegedly sniffing in the air as if like looking for something, maybe hunting or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the boy in, you know, terrified, fired a, a bird shot, but the creature didn't react. So... classic uh, sort of skeptical analysis of this account would be that the boy didn't see the the beast. It was a black bear. And this is, this is proposed by none other than of course, Joe Nickel, who we've brought up a million times on the show, uh, who's essentially decided that this is what it was a misidentified (laughs) black bear. But here's the problem. Uh, When you fire a gun, typically black bears are going to run away. Like I'm not a hunter. I've been out with my uncle before. Animals run when loud noises occur. Mm -hmm. Bear bangers are used specifically for that. A black bear is not going to stick around and just stare you in the face if you fire a shot. Mm, Unless it's it's defending its cubs or something like that and it's a mom. This was not the case. Or unless it's deaf. Or or that, (laughs) potentially. But I'm not really buying that. No, Joe Nickel, come on, man. He always has to discredit everyone. He's a dick. He kind of is. And anyways, yeah, we're not going to get into the whole Joe Nickel thing because we've done that before on the show. (laughs) Another version of this story was recounted by the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization and tells of a 14-year-old boy named James Lynn Crabtree who witnessed the seven to eight foot reddish haired animal in 1965 near Falk. And this was recounted by a guy named John Green, supposedly. Crabtree himself claims to have shot the creature three times in the face. So not once, but three times with no effect. And this was originally printed in an article from 1981 written by Lou Farish in the Arkansas Democrat. And it was uh, reprinted under the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. And I'm kind of confused about this one a little bit because are we talking about the same 14-year-old boy? Are there multiple 14-year-old boys Mm -hmm. in this you know, that are encountering this. What do you make of that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you. we talked a little bit about the idea before we started recording of obviously this was the lifestyle in the area. There was a mm. lot of kids this age out hunting, fishing, setting trap lines and stuff like that. Crabtree wasn't the only one doing this. Mm-hmm. So it's possible there was another same age boy that witnessed it, but it's very, very likely that these are conflated stories unless I, yeah. it was, unless you can find it to be published in the 40s or 50s, right? So it's clearly before Right. Uh, which we hadn't found. 
but that's okay. Maybe we can come back to that. Exactly. And it could have been just a um, a misnomer on the part of Lou Farish, who originally wrote that article in 1981. He could have got the dates confused there. So there's a lot of, you know, it's the classic kind of bleeds into the realm of folklore. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think it's time to get into the infamous counter at the Ford farmhouse, though. Let's do it. Yeah. This was basically the climax of the film, The Legend of Boggy Creek. And... I pulled this from an article that was printed in the Texarkana Gazette. It was written by Jim Powell, who was a staff writer on May 3rd, 1971. And the story goes as follows. So a man named Bobby Ford, aged 25, of Texarkana, Arkansas, who lived approximately 10 miles south of Texarkana on U.S. Highway 71, said the unidentified creature attacked him at his home shortly before midnight Saturday. Hmm. The encounter in the attack was so shocking that Bobby had to be treated for shock and for superficial scratches at the local St. Michael Hospital before being released. Despite Bobby being the center of the violent attack, the entire family witnessed something unexplainable that night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bobby was in the presence of multiple family members and friends, including his brother Don, uh, Charles Taylor, who I think it was his cousin, or just an in-law. Something like that, yeah. And... A few women as well, his wife, Elizabeth Ford, a few uh, younger kids as well that we all see depicted in the climax of the film. Staring out the window. Exactly. And they are basically, what's the word? They're besieged. I would say that. (laughs) Besieged by this creature. And Elizabeth Ford was the first to see none other than a dark fur-covered hand and glowing red eyes peering through the window as it tore through the screened-in window. I thought that was freaky, man. Yeah, that was well done. It was very well done. There's that scene. So that's in the living room. There's also uh, moments where it tries to jiggle the door. It goes in through the window. This is all in the movie. These aren't actual events described in the Texarkana Gazette. Right, yeah. (laughs) Just make that clarification there. That would take up a lot of uh, real estate in the paper. Let's just say that. (laughs) They'd have to cut sports and the editorial. (laughs) Cut it all. Uh, But the creature was described by Ford as being about seven feet tall, so very consistent with other accounts, about three feet wide across the chest. So we got a pretty good look at it. First, he did think it was a bear, but it ran upright and moved real fast, he said. So that's not very consistent with a bear. Definitely not. At one point during the night, the group saw the creature move toward the back of the house, and they shot several times in its direction before calling the local constable Ernest Walraven for assistance. He actually offered up his rifle to aid the defense of the house. He did a quick perimeter check, didn't see anything, left. The shooting actually continued. Later on, the creature came back. And the men actually thought they saw the creature fall at one point. They're all shooting at it from, like, the porch, essentially. At that moment, so they start to leave the safety of of the structure of the building. But Bobby started to turn around because he heard the women screaming. So he started to head back towards the house. And it was then, and this is according to Bobby here, he says, I was walking up the rungs of a ladder to get up onto the porch when the thing grabbed me. I felt a hairy arm come over my shoulder, and the next thing I knew, we were on the ground. The only thing I could think about was to get out of there. The thing breathed real hard, and his eyes were about the size of a half dollar and real red. Hmm. Spooky. Yeah, so the constable came back and searched the property again to no avail. They found no monster but only suspicious three-toed footprints around the house and claw marks on the front porch and around the windows. The the windows all had damage to them. It was the tin lining was all scratched up and torn away at parts. 
<laughs> so what do you make of that? It's so bizarre because it's like Bobby was attacked, but without really any ramifications from it. You know what I mean? Like nothing really happened to him. It was almost mm-hmm. just like it it bumped into him, not by accident, but it was just like clearly not trying to mercilessly slaughter him or yeah. take him away, like steal him. Oh, yeah, exactly. Maybe it was just it's like the behavior of this monster is just so bizarre. You don't know what it wants other than mm-hmm. when you talk about it taking some pigs or something. It's like, okay, it's hungry, certain time of year, it's an omnivore, it's looking for that. But besieging mm-hmm. the house is just very strange. And having multiple instances of being fired upon with rifles and things of that nature, like, you'd think that would maybe spook it, but... It's mm. a humanistic kind of uh, wanting to re- retaliate is very human-like, I feel like. So if you're being shot at and you don't run away, you just get yeah. angry. Maybe... Angry? Or Or maybe he's just showing them how big he actually is. He's like, it's kind of like a roughing up, right? An intimidation where it's like, I could do so much more to you. Like, he could have wrung his neck. You know what I mean? Yeah, true. And if it was, oh, like we're going to allude to in a second here, uh, Don Ford actually at one point said he thought it could have been a puma or a mountain lion. I'm pretty sure if it was a mountain lion or a puma, the scratches would have not have been superficial. He probably would have had bite wounds as well. Yes. It would have been a lot bloodier. And... You know, like, and that would have had to have been essentially like a rabid cat because they don't behave in that way. No. They're not going to retaliate like exactly. that. Exactly. In, in the film, they did a mention there was this one place under the porch where it looked as if something had been living. That's scary. So that's really freaky, man. Like, what if you had a little den in there? And it's whether like, it's a cat or something else, yeah. like maybe that would induce like territorial behaviors. Potentially. Potentially. Who would win in a fight, a panther or the? Uh, the Falk monster, we don't know. The thing that's inconsistent with a panther is the footprints. That's the thing I come back to all the time. Yeah, true. And there was also a massive search that ensued for the creature. There was hundreds of people combing the area. No one found tracks of a panther or puma or mountain lion. No. And the family, like I said before, they heard sounds and prowlings around the property on the Wednesday and Friday nights of the previous week, always after midnight. So... <laughs> I don't know. I guess mountain lions and pumas and stuff would be nocturnal. That makes sense. Like members of the primate family generally aren't, but the Falk monster is known for that. And the Texarkana or whatever you want to call them, the Boggy Creek monster, as soon as darkness falls, that's when everyone's on edge. Yeah. Praying for light. (laughs) Very true. Just to be clear too, I think, I I don't actually know if there's mountain lions. Like there's definitely bobcats, which makes me assume there would also be mountain lions. They mentioned in the documentary, the Small Town Monsters documentary. Did they say mountain lions? Pumas and mountain lions. And I was, we were kind of confused. We were like, wait a second. I thought those were mythical cats. I didn't think. (laughs) Like black, like like black panther. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. But they seem to allude to them as if they had seen tracks before and that they knew what they would have and even the one person in the small town monsters documentary she says she's heard the cries Mm -hmm. and she's never heard anything quite like the falc monster or the boggy creek monster it's a sound that i would really really like to hear for myself guttural or find some or if oh man if there was a recording i mean i mean sure there's a few you could try to find on youtube but whether they're legit or not is Mm. uh, yeah and it's just i feel like it'd be so much better just to hear it in person and that's i love how we're going that way because that's how they end the film right the the legend of boggy creek he's like i wish i could hear that yell just one more time yeah just so i know like you know he's still out there kind of thing he definitely was still out there after this encounter uh because it was just less than three weeks after this sort of attack on the house that there was another sighting and this is uh this is from a couple so mr and mrs dc woods uh jr and mrs rh sedgas all from the same area texarkana these are some interesting names but they were returning uh, from uh, Shrevenport, 
And they said that the creature crossed the highway right in front of their car. So this was a quote from them. Uh, It was hunched over and running upright. It had long, dark hair and looked real large. It didn't uh, look too tall, but I guess that's because it was bent over. It was swinging its arms kind of like a monkey does. What do you make of that? It's hard to go about and say that that could be a bear. Yeah. Or some people actually think that it could have been a gator or they're like it, it's laughable because some of the tracks some people think could be gator tracks like the, like the actual prince yeah. yeah exactly and i'm not an expert so i don't know but I, it seems to be the case like if the sheriff is there examining these prints why wouldn't he kind of say that you know yeah no kidding i don't know the quote continues along here it says it was mo- uh, really moving fast across the highway faster than a man i thought we were going to hit it the thing didn't act like it even noticed us it didn't look at the car It looked like a giant monkey in a way. It had dark, long hair, and I would guess it would weigh over 200 pounds, which I think is a pretty uh, conservative estimate. I think so, yeah. Considering, like, I'm not a large person. I weigh, like, 170. Well, exactly, (laughs) yeah, unless this was one of the younger, more adolescent ones. Oh, that's a good point, because that did come up, especially in the second Mm -hmm. film. Yeah, and in the Small Town Monsters doc, they do say that there has been a little bit of variations in coloring, uh, height, and attitude. Right. Mm -hmm. So after more sightings were reported in the weeks and months following this Ford house attack and the incident there, and there was a set of tracks also found 13 and a half inches long in a local soybean field, the local sheriff's department took notice of this. They were convinced that they were dealing with a member of the ape family, most likely, not wanting to just basically say it's a monster. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's what they were kind of going with. So Sheriff Greer said he and several deputies, along with several residents of the area of Falk, They were certain that the creature was spotted on Tuesday Mm -hmm. uh, and they attempted to set dogs on the trail of this creature. They didn't, he didn't want to kill it, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interested in it for its uh, cryptozoological value, I guess. Just wanted to trank it. But the dogs refused to follow the trail, which we kind of touched on in the beginning. That is ominous because these Mm -hmm. are trained hunting dogs. They're going after large However, um, the owner of the soybean field had a different sort of analysis. Which was interesting. And you you found this. So he basically said he was under the impression that the trail couldn't be followed because it was too dry and hot. The the scent of this creature wasn't sticking to the land. So the Mm -hmm. dogs weren't really afraid. They just couldn't pick it up. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. What do you make of that? I, it's a minor discrepancy. I I won't discount Willie Smith for his opinion. I think that could be the case. I'm not a tracker, so I don't know. Yeah. In the movie, they do make it seem as if the dogs are just too afraid. And they kind of say, like, we've never seen a more embarrassed bunch of dog owners. <laughs> I think, and that definitely adds to the the monster element, obviously. Exactly. Right? But this was the quote from the, from the sheriff. He said, evidently the creature is harmless unless cornered. Uh, we certainly don't want anyone to shoot the creature since it does not appear to uh, be harmful. Uh, we try and track it. We'll try and track it again and probably shoot it with a trank. So, mm-hmm. so he's very sympathetic. I appreciate that. Like he wants to capture a specimen. Like he wants to, he, he's, in the total like atypical fashion of what we would assume to be like the stereotype of a sheriff in a small town where they're like guns out guns blazing like ready to go uh, pitchforks yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) the fire and all that but no they they seem to be very genuinely curious and just want to uncover the mystery which i liked Mm -hmm. and uh there is even more evidence and anecdotes that are found on this bigfoot field 
Field Researchers Organization website. And there was one article that I already referred to called uh, The Falk Monster Alive and Well. Yeah. And that was that 1981 article from the te- Ar- Arkansas Democrat uh, by Lou Farish. And it goes on to say that the author of the article, so Farish and two others, actually had a conversation with a Kentucky resident, um, Don Pelfrey. And this particular individual spends many summers at his relative's house in Arkansas uh, near the Ozark Mountains and Black Lake. And Fell Creek actually runs right behind the house. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Don explained to the author, this is a quote here. So Don's relatives who wish to remain anonymous have seen the creature on several occasions. They describe the, quote, monster as a, quote, gorilla type, except that it looks much more human than an animal. Its arms are much longer than a man, and the face is covered with hair. The manimal <laughs> allegedly leaves behind 17-inch footprints. Hmm. Yeah. So a little bit bigger than the ones we saw in the soybean field, which, again, kind of alludes to this, you know, minor discrepancies that, in my mind, speak to a consistency in just variations of a species. Right? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So according to Mr. Pelfrey, one can see dermal ridges on these prints Hmm. so the ball of the foot is more flat than a human's and there's no indication of an arch Mm -hmm. they kind of claim that it's about 800 pounds in total and about 10 feet tall it sounds like a bear with an added screech Hmm. so not quite bear-like it's just a little bit more visceral aspect exactly sprinkled in Another interesting aspect Don related was how the creature had a terrifically bad smell like that of a skunk. Yeah. And that it was violent, killing for sport in some cases. And so this was the hog account that I wanted to get into that I alluded to earlier in the episode here. Right. So essentially he goes on to say that his aunt Martha had two prize hogs that she always hand fed until they were a couple of hundred pounds. Late one night, they heard such a calamity that they ran to the back porch and turned the light on. When they checked the pen, both hogs were missing. There were no signs of blood or anything else. When looking around the house, they found a huge path through the weeds leading into the swamp, where they discovered the remains of the hogs about 500 yards away. There appeared to be large bites and scratches, and the vital organs were torn out. It appeared that the hogs were killed for sport rather than food. Yeah. Interestingly enough, their neighbors had two Dobermans killed. It seemed every bone in their bodies were broken. They were mutilated so rapidly, but by the time that the family had gotten dressed and outside, the dogs were dead. And uh, Don goes on to say that he believes this creature has become more aggressive due to people venturing into the swamps. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. I guess, territorial, and that could make sense for attacking the Ford house. Yeah, exactly. In, in a way, even though... That's they now didn't... since abandoned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good thing for, for the for the creature, I guess. Yeah. There's no strip malls and big apartment buildings being put up in southern Arkansas right in that neck of the woods. <laughs> exactly. So obviously <laughs> this, the film from 1972 really sparked interest nationwide, even continent-wide, really. I mean, this would have made it into Canada too, and people would have been interested. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the film eventually made it across the border in the 70s as well. I would imagine so. But it needed a sequel. In, in a way. Mm-hmm. And they got it. I mean, people got it. A bunch of different versions. Uh, but one specifically in, ni- in the 1980s, 1985, Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues was one that we watched for this episode. And we thought it was pretty interesting. So this, uh, this second sequel <laughs> mm-hmm. following these uh, 
these events, the return to Boggy Creek from 1977, sort of mm-hmm. a follow up to that one. That was a different director, Tom different Moore. Director, mm-hmm. But it still uh, picks up with the same creature, the idea of it returning to the area of Texarkana, right? Yep. Featuring a guy by the name of Dr. Brant Lockhart, who the whole idea of this story is that he's been called, he's an anthropologist from the University of Arkansas. He's been notified by the local sheriff's department that something strange has maybe been going on and he's going to go and interview some locals. He gets ridiculed by the locals in this movie. Oh yeah. Right off the top. Mercilessly. They're just like a bunch of city folk, like the city slickers and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. So he kind of assembles a little team. He's got a couple students from, from Arkansas and a friend of one of the students who has like, I guess the video camera, some of the equipment to use, right? I think it was some of, oh, it wasn't the video camera. It was something else though. Yeah. So they needed her. Leslie. Hmm. Leslie. <laughs> Leslie. <laughs> but their strategy is very much like, I don't know, I guess kind of like the small town monsters almost documentary where it's just go there, be there and kind of take, you know, take stock of, of talking to people and then what's going on in the woods. So Explore they, a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. So they go into the remote bo- uh, boggy woods, set up their base camp start exploring the surrounding areas and it's very similar to the first movie in the sense that it's just kind of like panning nature shots and a lot of things like that yeah and they recount a few tales of the creature uh, and then they have this bizarre encounter with a rabid dog mm-hmm. it's like Cujo all of a sudden just shows up in this movie <laughs> and yeah. I don't really know why they did that like l- let me just say this right off the top the first 1970 72 film is much better in my opinion Yes, I liked the style of that one a little bit better. It's funny though; it's a, this second one is very narrative focused. Eh? It is very much so. Are they implying with this dog scene? It's kind of like it's meant to be like a buffer of action. It's like nothing's happening, nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden you're being attacked by something that has nothing to do with the creature you're looking for. Unless they're attempting to imply this creature is also rabid. Or it's something else is going on and these, you know what I mean? Like, that's the reason why it's so violent or something. Yeah, that was one of the weirdest scenes in the whole movie to me. Very strange. And it culminates with them, like, basically being trapped inside this little abandoned farmhouse thing with this this dog, this rabid dog underneath them. And then he ends up almost, uh, Lockhart is almost uh, toast. And then he ends up getting saved by his student, Tim, shirtless Tim, as we'll refer to him. Shirtless (laughs) Tim. He never has a shirt on, ever. (laughs) But I thought this was very strange, too. And I, in my mind, I didn't really jump to that conclusion. Like, the dog had been attacked by the creature and was subsequently, yeah, like, rabid. But the whole ending of that scene was so weird, too. They literally just, like, look at the dog as it's still dying. They don't even finish him off. And basically... Lockhart says, well, if it's not dead, it's dying already. And then they just piece it. They're like, yeah. bite. <laughs> like, very, what? very strange. That was very strange. I didn't really like that scene no, at all. It was all. very similar, very unnecessary, and very similar to the kitten scene that I hated in the first one, too. At least that one, it was just like, oh, it was scared to death. At least True. it was implying something more But where did involved. they get that kitten? I feel bad for the kitten. Okay, Anyways. we don't know if that was actually... A real dead kitten. It definitely was. Well, we, that was okay. very real. I'm just going to pretend that it wasn't <laughs> it for was. myself. The It was the double eyelid that got me. I was like, that's not a dummy cat. Like, that's a and dead cat. analyzing this in great detail for oh, you guys. Well, I've seen dead cats. I went to uh, Guadalupe one time. They're everywhere. Anyways. One part I actually did like about the, the sequel, if you will, this part two, was when they had the creature on the radar. They set up this oh, kind yeah. of perimeter because that was almost like a like a, a predator, alien versus predator kind of a, a vibe to it. It 
the problem I had with it though is like nobody disappears. So they have yeah. the blips kind of like show up and then di- disappear off the screen. They're like, oh shit, like where where did Leslie go or whatever, right? Tanya. But then everyone's fine. Tanya. Or Tanya, sorry. But then and everyone's Tim. fine. Tim disappears too. And right. then all of a sudden he's at the how would they not see him on the actual radar coming up to their little R V camper thing? Yeah. Was it because they had set, because he makes this explanation to Leslie, who, useless Leslie, let's just call her that. Sure. He's basically saying how you can calibrate this thing based on either temperature or weight. And he uses weight to kind of determine what he's dealing with as far as the targets. Mm -hmm. And he has the two targets on the screen, which is Tim and Tanya. And then he sees this third one come in. And it's, it's like, well, it could be a deer. It could be a deer. It could be anything. So he starts to recalibrate it for a higher weight. And then it goes up and up and, and up. Over 300 and pounds, over whatever. Over 350, over 400. And they're like, what the heck is this thing? And it starts moving in on Tanya. Right. And they're like, it's so rapid and so silent. She doesn't even hear it coming, which is so creepy, hey? Yeah. But and that's, I, if she would have disappeared, I think that could have been a crux. Yeah. You know. Totally. Yeah. I think they should have offed Leslie. They should have offed one of <laughs> they them. They should have got, yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, I agree. The city slick of Leslie. Come on. I guess it doesn't really culminate anything. Like, they they all eventually have their own run-ins with the creature. They all see it. Yeah. There's that one hilarious scene where the unsuccessful uh, going off four by fording off-roading and they get, <laughs> they stuck, get stuck in the stuck. mud. Yeah. And then they just basically just abandon the whole thing because they see the creature and then... That was hilarious. Their walk of shame back to the camp. And then (laughs) doesn't make any sense really why they would. It's no, exactly. The structure of the plot isn't, isn't fantastic, Mm. but I did like the creature though for it being the 1980s. It was well done. Yeah. That guy did a good job. I can't remember. He was some bodyguard from uh, Hollywood, (laughs) but yeah, no, he did a good job. I think one of the most interesting parts though is when they get to Crenshaw, old man Crenshaw. And so this is after these, yeah, encounters the hilarious scene of unsuccessful four by fouring, and the team learns of this old man Crenshaw who lives in the bog all by himself. They go to interview the man after renting a little boat, so they have to rent a boat to get to him because you can't actually access his property by road. He got right. kind of he describes it as like he used to be able to access it, and he has his jeep parked there, but then it basically yeah it got washed out, and he's just. It's just boat access now. So anyways, they go to interview him and he's kind of oof, like, yeah, your typical kind of hick kind of loner guy living out in the whatever. Kind of creepy, you know, yeah, kind of definitely. creeps on the girls a little bit. For sure. They get stuck with him because the storm rolls in, which is really freaky. And it's during the storm that things quickly devolve. Uh, Lockhart learns that Crenshaw's had multiple run-ins with this creature and actually captured one of the young ones. And he has it locked away in his back room where the creature is essentially dying. It's injured. It's um, presumed to be the offspring of the big man, right? Yeah. But the poor thing is just close to death. Shocked that this guy has this thing and realizes the danger that they're in, right? Because (laughs) you have the baby, the parent's going to come looking for it. Definitely. So Crenshaw being who he is, mistakes the fact that his students are calling him Doc, uh, thinks that Lockhart's an actual doctor and not just a professor. And so he asks Lockhart to treat the creature, which is probably why he showed him the creature in the first place. Probably, yeah. And then basically after that is when we get another sort of showdown with the monster. It kind of ends with this sort of very delicate handoff of the child back to the monster through the broken front door. The creature leaves in the storm and Crenshaw tries to shoot it, but he's stopped by Lockhart. Of course. And all of the crew breathe this big sigh of relief. It's like, oh, okay, it's over. 
And in the morning, we see Crenshaw. He's obviously calmed down. He makes this, like, kind of poignant statement saying, I don't know what that thing was, but it should be left alone. (laughs) Yeah. And And he's right. (laughs) And that's basically the end of the film, hey? Yeah. I, I, yeah, and I, I didn't hate the ending. I thought it was a decent ending. Slow start, mm-hmm. but yeah. decent sequel to the part one. Mm-hmm. Definitely recommend checking out both and hope you guys have seen both already before you're listening to this episode. Yes, definitely. And then after watching both of those, go into the Small Town Monsters doc. Yeah, definitely. But there was a fun couple of stories in part two, The Legend Continues. Yeah. Um, some of my favorites was one of the first ones where it was the local man who encounters the creature while he's repairing a flat tire on his vehicle. The man was actually rendered unconscious and he was found to be dragged into the woods several meters away from his car. He never came out of his unconscious state before he died to tell his story. So how Lockhart then knows of it is kind of unexplained. It's like, is it just added to the repertoire of stories that people tell around the campfire? It's just added into the folklore. I don't know. There was another one where a local rancher, he was eating lunch, mysteriously loses his entire herd of cattle and then sees the creature kind of like, you know, sneaking away from the Mm -hmm. scene, so to speak. That's pretty interesting. (laughs) There was also a local attorney attorney from (laughs) Falk. Uh, who was, uh, this is great. This is hilarious. So he was sitting in an outhouse and was attacked by the creature on the John. Uh, <laughs> but it was before he had a chance to, uh, pull his pants all the way down apparently. So he, uh, didn't quite make it. Let's just say that. Oof, uh, yeah. yeah, that was bad. I don't, I, cake. Okay, so the way that that scene plays off, like he thinks it's his wife bugging him at first. He hears something outside of the outhouse yeah. and he's all like annoyed and he's like, ah, Martha or whatever her name is. And then it bursts through, like, the, the front of the house. <laughs> and he yeah. freaks out. He stands up super abruptly. And I think it's his leg that ends up going into the outhouse. Into the like, pit. into yeah. the actual. Ooh, yeah. And time. there's no sanitary fluid or anything. It doesn't come out blue. It comes out a bright brown color. <laughs> bright brown. Bright brown. Interesting. <laughs> the best part of that story was the very end, though, when his wife has to <laughs> get the hose out. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the magazine's going to do it, hon. Let me get the hose. (laughs) That would ruin your afternoon, I think. (laughs) And then uh, last but not least, uh, there was the local sheriff encounter who basically he was coming home from a fishing trip and he went around the side of his house and was like surprise attacked by the young one. And the young one makes off with the sheriff's catch the day, all of his fish. And he sees the big one with it too. And they both kind of amble off into the woods. And this was actually the story that prompted Professor Lockhart and his team to come out and investigate. And uh, it basically all spirals away from there. Right. Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk a little bit about Charles B. Pierce? Okay, because we didn't even touch on this. Like, he actually plays a part in the second one. So he plays Professor Lockhart. Right. Pretty cool. I think he did a good job. Like, he's just this very... I don't even know how to describe him, really. He reminds me of a lot of local like um regional district like park officials oh, yeah, and things totally. like that and just like kind of this weird not weird he's not weird he's just very soft spoken he doesn't really say too much yeah yeah it doesn't seem like a monster hunter let's say that yeah very anthropologist but i guess yeah. that's his character but anyways Charles b pierce the actual director and producer of this film these two films he is a local uh, resident from Texarkana, uh, variously described as a salesman, director, independent film producer, cinematographer, actor, um, uh, art director for a local television station, and best known for his cult classics such as The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which was in 1976, The Legend of Boggy Creek, among others. He's produced about 13 independent films in his career. 
uh, Boggy Creek would be the most successful out of yeah, those. Yeah, definitely. But he was actually born in uh, 1938 in Hammond, Indiana, and he is now deceased. He passed away on March 5th, 1910, or sorry, 2010 in Dover, Tennessee. But as a child, uh, his family actually moved to Texarkana, where he learned many of these skills and uh, knowledge that would later earn him some fame in the and movie industry. Definitely fame, for sure. Mm-hmm. And this is a fun little note here. He actually played a character named uh, Mayor Chuckles on a <laughs> local television show before he moved into more of his directorial ambitions. So like we said, yeah, he, he appears as Professor Lockhart in The Boggy Creek 2, The Legend Continues. He's just a very interesting character in my mind. Like he, there's actually a day uh, named after him in Arkansas to remember him. And he obviously made a really big imprint on the community and in America, right? With this story. And what did you make of him? Like, especially going into the small town monsters take on him. Like, was there anything that stood out? Um, that's a really good question. I didn't mark anything down, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. I think for me, one of the things that kind of stuck out was the idea that he didn't share much of the wealth of the the proceeds, like the profits from the films with the local residents. Kind of surprising, yeah. Which I thought was kind of shocking because he worked so closely with them all, right? Like during like the actual film crew and then the actual actors themselves. And he actually, he lists one of the crab trees. It's actually Smokey Crabtree, who was one of the elders of the family, yeah. who was basically called local authority on the subject. Since he had these connections, like I just thought that was kind of confusing that he didn't really... It's, it's, it's unfortunate a little bit. But I wonder because we do see the film itself was independent until it was picked up by a production house. I can't remember the name of the production house, but that was where it made all these big profits. So I wonder if a lot of those profits were absorbed by the production house. Kind of makes Could have sense. Been, or the distribution network and that type of thing. But For sure. Anyways. Do you yeah. want to jump into some small town monster stuff? Yes. Yeah. Because this kind of ties it all together in my mind. No, it definitely does. They did a really good job. The whole series of, of their documentaries is really well done. So this was narrated and hosted by a pretty pretty famous cryptozoologist at this point, Lyle Blackburn. He was actually featured in a re- relatively recent Astonishing Legends uh, episode. You guys should go check it out. It's a pretty uh-huh. interesting interview. But he heads down there every year, apparently, to Falk southern arkansas because he's mm-hmm. enamored with this story it's definitely one of the i don't even know like the the most prolific i guess in the united states i would say really wow that's a pretty the bo- when you say boggy creek people know i mean how many movies were that famous that I are guess. about sasquatch that's or true things like that you know what it's, I mean? it's in the realm for me of like the mothman yeah definitely things like that the jersey devils totally like, yeah. mm-hmm. regional but still pretty famous but he gets into some more facts about this creature so that's why we really wanted to add it into this sort of film episode and we really encourage you guys to check it out too talks about sightings interviews people and takes them right back to the actual locations where it happened in falk and then talks to people in t- the area of texarkana as well and the effects of the film's release on the community were interesting because a lot of the people were speaking to him for the very first time. They mm-hmm. didn't talk to anyone after the movie was released in 1972. It took all the way into the, the tw- 2016 mm-hmm. uh, for this to take place. Totally. And I liked how some of the interviews were done with people that were quite young at the time of the release. Like, say they were like eight or ten or something like that. and Watching they, it in the backseat at the drive-in with yeah, their parents, right? Yeah, exactly. So they would be more, much more open to talking to him, I think. They wouldn't have been as, like, uh, jaded by some of the stuff that came after. Exactly. With all the swarms of people and whatnot. Because he emphasized that, this idea that the, half the town was dead set against the film project. The other half really embraced it and supported it uh, as the town mascot. 
god and this creature that was going to bring people into the area, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this documentary does a good job of getting into the families that were portrayed in the film. And a lot of the interviews that they do with locals are very supportive of these families, basically saying that the Crabtrees, the Fords, the Circes were all genuine, reputable folk with tight lips. They don't necessarily just spout this off to anyone and they wouldn't make this stuff up. And he kind of circles back to this guy, Smokey Crabtree, who is, like I said before, the leading local authority that was referenced as a consultant on the films. And he's authored several books on the topic as well. And obviously his family has had many sightings over the years. Uh, Lots of crab trees out in those woods. Lots of crab trees. Lots of crab trees. And he, interestingly enough, never had his own sighting. He searched for this monster his entire life. He is now deceased, unfortunately. And they did a good job of dedicating it to both Smokey and to Charles B. Pierce, which I liked. As well, I really enjoyed the idea that the timeline of sightings and the history of this creature actually go way further than the 1940s. And uh, they bring up one woman who was actually on her deathbed when she recounted a story of when she was a young girl in 1908. She was fishing in the bog when she encountered the creature washing its feet in the creek. And it wasn't violent towards her. She ended up getting away from it, quietly crept away, was very, you know, just still and calm. And she never told anyone her story until she was dying. Yeah. So that's crazy. And there was other references, too, that were quite early into, like, you know, the the early 1900s, essentially. And I thought it was cool, too, that they mention, again, the idea that Indigenous folk know this creature as second nature. They have uh, men in the woods and and this has existed in their, you know, in their reality for years and years and they've existed alongside men. It's just how it is. Very similar. Like we've, you know, like uh, the indigenous peoples of the BC coast and and Sasquatch and and Washington and Oregon and and the areas around Mount St. Helens that we've talked about recently and people knew that these things were there. Obviously it's different, different terrain being in the bogs and swamps and stuff like that. Yeah. Like different regional variants as you could call them. Yeah, exactly. Which we've... Again, we've talked about in great detail and the idea of, say, for example, smell being one of the prominent like differences. Does that have to do with just it living in a swamp and being around sort of decay and and dead Mm. matter and things like that? Or is it It's a lot wetter of an environment. It's hotter. It's wetter. Yeah. This Mm. thing is just kind of pungent because of that. Whereas it's it's cooler (laughs) up in North America. It's ripe. It's not as ripe uh, for the uh, the Sasquatch of BC per se. But this was interesting because we've never covered it before, but obviously it's very similar to the Honey Island Swamp Monster, which we're not going to get into in any great detail, but we probably will eventually. Oh, yeah. But this was a story that cropped up in the mid-60s. So just before this whole phenomena of the the film being released with the Boggy Creek, although the Honey Island Swamp, like Louisiana borders Arkansas, but this exact location isn't exactly like really close per se. No, it's like the opposite corner of the state. Although there does seem to be, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, if we've got listeners in these areas, there does seem to be, uh, parks and forests and sort of like reserve land that would connect up towards the corner of Arkansas. So potentially the river could travel it, (laughs) right? Three toes though. That's the main thing I wanted to mention here because the Honey Island Swamp Monster, the prints have also been three-toed. The original footprints in the bean field of the Falk Monster, also three toes. And we were talking about this earlier. Does this have something to do with physiology or is this just totally by chance? Like these creatures were either Mm. injured potentially and these are just sort of one-off prints that happen to match or something that's been proposed for the Honey Island Monster is this idea that 
these creatures are traveling in the bogs and swamps and river systems, mm-hmm. and they're known to be good swimmers. So perhaps they are maybe five-toed, I'm air-quoting here, but there's three more prominent digits, like they're webbed feet, essentially. I see. They've evolved to be not... Almost like frogs. Exactly. So mm-hmm. they're not the exact same as a... As a, as a gorilla, I'm quoting here. Mm-hmm. But the other funny thing about the Honey Island story is that one of the early sort of like beliefs amongst locals or like the explanation of this was that in at the turn of the century, there was a, uh, a circus or something along these lines where uh, a train crashed oh. and a bunch of chimpanzees escaped <laughs> and that there was some sort of weird sort of melding between chimpanzees and other creatures of the bog, which of course Amphibious we know is chimpanzees. Exactly, right? Which we know is impossible. <laughs> well, no, we're not in the atomic age, man. Where, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe there's some testing. <laughs> Things are getting on. mixed up. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> there's radiation everywhere. <laughs> but that was kind of the, the interesting connection to the Falk monster. Three toes, similar kind of terrain and environment. Mm-hmm. And a really good place for this thing to hide. Yeah, I like that idea that it could have been webbed footprints that they're actually seeing. You do see numerous uh, casts in all of these films, like the especially in the documentary by Small Town Monsters. Yeah, and in my mind, it was kind of I have to get listeners' opinions on this and your opinion, Andrew, because in my mind, some of these three-toed, I'm air quoting here, footprints actually kind of they physiologically very much resembled a five-toed like print to me but -hmm. it was just in my mind i was like well what if it's very muddy it's very swampy like what if it's just slipping so you don't get the same um possible you know like yeah the same definition that you would get if it's like harder uh dirt or earth or whatever which is definitely the case in some instances or perhaps maybe there's injured ones too yes Mm -hmm. which in my mind it kind of i quickly negate that too because it would be very interesting to have a three like two injured feet you know what i mean so yeah, to have true. the consistency of the three toes on each p- foot side it would you know be exactly I mean? the same yeah that'd be mm-hmm. yeah but i will say on some of those casts that we saw and blackburn actually does say that some of the later casts that they found were five toed so right. in my mind i'm like well maybe it's just a, a interpretation issue yeah, it's it's. I think it's a, a mix of everything you just said, mm-hmm. like non-perfect prints and casting of those prints, mm-hmm. potentially the people looking at them. They're not exactly all Jeff Meldrums out there who are yeah. specialists in this right off the bat necessarily. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at it and saying, oh, that's three toes or that's eight toes or 50 toes, right? Like you oh, exactly. You're just guessing. And then there is also the possibility that some of these tracks are hoaxed. And then there's also the possibility that these are, yeah, like like some people alluded to, like gators. And I'm like, that seems strange. And you would see, I would imagine you would see maybe some kind of sliding of the belly or do they lift themselves up? Well, they do. But I guess I mean, they do th- lift there themselves. There would be markings. I mean, people the know tail. what those look the like. The tail would be the, the key, I, I think, you know, but nah. One interesting thing too, just shifting tiny, tiny bit, I wanted to mention because I thought this was really interesting, didn't know this about Miller County in this area of Arkansas, but they made a point of saying it in the small town monsters, the idea of the river separating the counties. Uh, So this area of Falk is even more particularly isolated. It's, it's got a Mm -hmm. human population that this creature clearly creeps out and interacts with once in a while, but maybe it wouldn't even do that if it was on the other side of the river. Like those counties are all connected. This is super isolated. It's got Texas on the one side where it's just vast woodlands. And then anything on the other side is blocked by, of course, a water system. Mm -hmm. So it's basically just completely untouched, pristine wilderness. It's just the sulfur bottom lands of uh, what basically the boggy river empties into and all that. So, so, we're kind of getting down to the end here. We are. We're yeah. kind of, I mean, ultimately, I guess I'll throw the question out to you. What do you make of all this? What do you make of the monster itself? 
Do you believe in it? I <laughs> I think it's highly plausible. And there are things that a lot of skeptics will point to right away, including there was one archaeologist that was actually presented with a couple of these tracks, and he made a few quick uh, observations saying, like, you know, no member of the primate family has three toes, so that is inconsistent, as well the fact that there are no known primates living in North America, <laughs> or have ever lived in North America ever in the past, supposedly. Yes. And then he also points to the fact that primates don't have nocturnal behaviors, so it just doesn't really make sense that this monster is always sighted after dark and the, the residents fear it and they fear it until the day. So as again, those are three major factors that kind of impede the plausibility. But in my mind, all of the evidence and the anecdotes and stories and everything else kind of override that. But yeah, no, I definitely agree. I'm not going to say that that thing's not out there. Me neither. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's a bear either, like Joe Nickel. That's pretty confident, man. <laughs> Very confident because obviously these are people who spend their entire lives in the woods and in the bogs and fishing yeah. and hunting and doing these things. They know what these things look like. They've killed mm -hmm. bears before and skinned them and ate them. They know yeah. what they look like. Exactly. So yeah, it's pretty offensive when you hear those explanations. And I'm, yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't think we're ever really going to know at least in our lifetime per se, it almost seems even more unlikely in this terrain than it does in BC with Sasquatch here. Even though it's vast wilderness too, it's pretty uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. It's a little easier, I guess. Once you're there, it's easier to traverse for sure up in the northern areas of BC. It's cold yeah. and it's difficult, but it's not Well, it swamp. depends on the time of year too, how much snow is on the very ground. Very true. Mm -hmm. That's very true. <sighs> really interesting stuff, man. <laughs> if you guys are from this area or you've been down to Falk, if you've been to the uh, the Monster Mart that's down there, where that's uh, pretty famous now that they feature in Small Town Monsters, let mm -hmm. us know. We're really, really curious uh, who's had any sort of experience with uh We want to know. And we want to know what you guys think of this, as always. As always. Drops a line and yeah. tell us your thoughts. Yeah, you can send us an email too. If you don't want to comment on Facebook or anything like that, into the mm -hmm. portal mailbox at gmail.com. We really love getting your emails, you guys. We did have a couple other things that we wanted to uh, mention too. Like first off, we have the relaunch of our blog, The Strange Times, yes. over on our network website. So maybe Amber, you can talk about that just exactly. quick. Exactly. So we've relaunched Strange Times. Woohoo! Just in time for the immense amount of boredom that probably a lot of you are feeling right now <laughs> yeah. of being in self-isolation so check it out if you're needing some reading material we've got four new articles up Sick. uh we've got one on sleep paralysis and how to prevent it by miranda mclaughlin from uh the host of all things dreams a look at hellier and season two by chris rustic host of obscure anomalies and an examination of the mysterious hex of frackville by andrew gable host nice. of forgotten darkness and this is the really fun one. All of those are great articles, super fun reads. They're just quick and easy. So yeah. it's not like you're going to get bogged down in a huge thing. Very consumable. And Very consumable. Yeah, that's a good word. And last but not least, this is really fun. Okay, so a new series, um, All Things Witchy. It's called There's a Little Witch in All of Us. And this is going to be an ongoing series by Courtney Pepino, who's a co-host of Spellcast podcast, all part of the Straight Up Strange Network. And she's going to be doing an ongoing advice and information column called Ask a Witch as well. So she's got two projects on the go here. So basically the first um, that I mentioned there, there's a little witch in all of us. It's an article. It's up right now. It's basically talking about how everyday practices actually have their roots in the occult. Yeah. So you can go and kind of like, it's very illuminating. It's really I loved it. Yeah. It was really fun. And then also this Ask a Witch. So this is 
the column that she's going to be doing. So we need you guys to send in all of your questions related to the occult, magic, witchcraft, divination, whatever. If you have questions, we want to know. And she wants to know. She'll answer them. Her oh, and yeah. Andreal are great. Awesome. And yeah. so you can email their questions into witchypage at gmail.com. Or you can just DM us directly on our strange pods, like all over, like, you know, on the Facebook group. So the strange group, and then also on uh, Twitter or on Instagram, if you're on there, strange pods, strange podcasts on Twitter. Yep. And basically, yeah, you're, (laughs) you could be featured in the very first column. So get your questions in now. We'd really, really love to see them. Totally. Mm -hmm. Last but not least, you guys, if you do enjoy listening to the show, please uh, leave us a review. It really helps us sort of climb the rankings on Apple podcasts and get noticed by other people. So yeah, share the show on social media. And uh, if you have time, leave us a review. If you haven't already, we really, really appreciate it. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, Oh yeah. Smash it. Well, until next time (laughs) on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.